The world is wild and wonderful. There's so much yet to know. So here we are with questions. It's a what in the Sam Hill show. We've done the math. We've read the books. We've searched through archives. Oh, we're nerds and we're letting our freak flag fly. Letting it fly. Oh, we're nerds and we're letting our freak flag fly. Hello and welcome to all you nerds, dorks, geeks, wonks, and amateur intellectuals. My name is Erin and this is the What in the Sam Hill podcast, where I apply academic rigor to the mystical, preternatural, and downright weird, because I want to understand the inner workings of the universe, and I assume you do too. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving break. We're coming back after a bit of a break for me. Um, It was a busy, busy time, so... You don't know, I have um, one child, a, she's 11 months old now, um, and so uh, I'm working full-time. I've got an 11-month-old child. Um, I actually then hosted Thanksgiving this year for the first time because normally my parents host it for my side of the family, but they are moving, and then um, since we were going to be hosting it anyway, my uh, husband's family all came to our house as well, so we had a a big get together. And then um, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, I had my uncle's funeral, and then we had to move my parents. So I have spent the last five days uh, moving and hauling my parents' stuff out of the city. And um, the complicated thing is that we have to kind of store it for a little while, and because they their house isn't built yet and so we're finding different places like they have so the movers are storing their furniture and then they have storage units near their new house that have a lot of their um, household stuff but also still some building materials for for the new house Um, and then where they're staying uh, in an apartment they've got some storage there and then I've got some of their stuff stored at my house so there is stuff kind of scattered to the winds but It has been an exhausting, exhausting few days. Every single muscle in my body hurts, I think. I haven't been, I can tell you for a fact, I have not been this sore since I played um, college volleyball and had like two days, three days. I, I mean, my feet hurt. My hands hurt. I was telling my mom today that if I went to a carnival and tried to do one of those like grip things where you know, it like measures your grip and it tells you like, oh my gosh, you're so strong. I wouldn't even, it wouldn't even register my grip right now. I mean, it hurts to write. It hurts to do anything. Totally worth it. I'm really happy to have been able to help my parents out and like huge thanks to my husband and father-in-law for helping the la- like the last few days to really... Um, get everything done. I mean, trailer load after trailer load after trailer load. We had so much crap. Some of it we hadn't seen in 20 years, so that's nice. Um, but man, am I, am I worn out, but happy to be here. Happy to do it, be doing this. So this week we will be discussing Champ. Um, so if you don't know Champ, you may have heard of the Lake Champlain Monster. Same thing, different name, cute name. It's basically the American equivalent to Nessie, which is the famous Loch Loch Ness monster, of course. Um, But I'm going to try to distance my research from the comparison between Champ and Nessie. And I just want to look at Champ 
as an individual entity for a few reasons. First of all, champ sightings actually predate Nessie. So that's kind of rude to only discuss it as a function of its younger cousin's shadow. Um, and then secondly, Nessie actually has quite a bit of drama around it, which I'm going to assume if you're in the conspiracy-ish community and you're listening to this podcast, you already know. But for those of you who don't, um, like the infamous surgeon's photo, it's probably the photo you've seen if you've ever seen a photo of Loch Ness Monster. Supposedly that was faked. I haven't really fully looked into it, um, but it definitely has that stigma around it. And then also just if Champ can't stand up to its own scrutiny, then what does it matter if Nessie is or isn't real? I mean, we have to consider the phenomenon as an individual thing uh, before we can address it as as a widespread phenomenon, just because if, if each one of those individual things falls apart, well, then the phenomenon as a whole falls apart. Um, and just because one thing is real doesn't mean something else is. So I really want to look just at Champ. Um, obviously, you know, uh, I come, well, I guess this isn't obvious for all of you. This is obvious to me because I live with myself every single day, if you didn't know that. Um, but I am a huge Bigfoot nerd, and so I know of Bigfoot and the research surrounding Bigfoot more than any other cryptid. So um, I come from kind of that mentality. And one of the complications of discerning an aquatic cryptid as opposed to Bigfoot is that, you know, the water makes it so that you're not going to have footprints or hair samples or or something like that. You're not really going to be able to um, have physical evidence in the water unless you bring up a body. Um, but also the water makes it infinitely more probable that an unknown species could be living there. Um, there is just so much of the oceans and even our lakes and stuff like that that we just have not explored and and not been able to explore due to our limitations of, you know, things like needing oxygen and needing a certain amount of light to see and um, not doing well in certain temperatures. I mean, obviously, when you're talking about the uh, northern reaches um, of the Arctic Ocean and then the Anar the most southern reaches of the Anarchic Ocean, Antarctic Oceans and then also uh, you know even in the Great Lakes and and stuff like that you have these really cold temperatures it's going to make it hard for a human to actually physically get out and explore we have to rely more on technology which is also an issue um, but uh, but the, it just, it, it means it's going to be something that we kind of have to rely on faith instead of exploring the evidence, but we can still um, do a little digging. And so that's what we're going to do here today. One thing I didn't realize going into this was just how widespread the lake monster stories are. I mean, they really are as ubiquitous and consistent as the Bigfoot stories. Um, you know, obviously I'm not going to be getting into that, like I just said, but I did want to mention here that, like, I, I mean, I knew of Champ, I knew of Nessie, and I knew of, there's a few others in North America, for example, I think Ogopogo and, and a couple others, but, like, I didn't realize it's even broader than that. I kind of figured it might have been, like, a Western European kind of phenomenon where, oh, the Brits got something, so, 
the Americans kind of want it. There, we have a we have an intense relationship between the two. You know, for example, the Banshee of Ireland is found in Appalachian folklore because of the Irish um, settlers and and all that. So there is overlo- overlap in our folklore between America and Britain. So I was kind of thinking that the lake monster might fall into that category, but no, it's even more widespread than that. So um, that was pretty impressive to me. So it made me feel like, oh, well, there may actually be something a little more on the table here, whether it's a metaphysical um, analogy uh, type of folklore story, or if it's actually a, a, um, a real biological entity. Um, it just made me feel like there's something there. So I really want to dig into this. So to begin with, I want to look at the oldest newspaper articles that I could find. And my thought here was that if I'm looking at the earliest sightings, that we would be able to get to the truth before the hype. Because I feel like now people are expecting Champ, so they're going to be more likely to see Champ. And yes, you know, we can get into the argument about law of attraction, and if you're, you know, wanting to see something, you're going to attract it to you. But the philosophy of why you are more likely to see what you expect is irrelevant, whether it's just a fact of like your mind playing tricks on you or the law of attraction bringing that thing to you it kind of doesn't matter i want to know what they saw when they weren't expecting it now interestingly i did find a report in the vermont watchman and state journal from september 18th 1855 1851 sorry that describes it it describes a new floating bridge across lake champlain and describes it as a monster as a sea serpent and as a leviathan. And I'm going to circle back to this when I discuss takeaways in a minute, but I wanted to mention it first because it was actually the earliest report that I found in the newspapers about 20 years before any um, newspaper article that I could find about Champ sightings itself. So let's discuss timeline real quick, actually. Um, So Lake Champlain was discovered by and named after Lake Samuel de Champlain, and it's said that he described a lake monster in the late uh, 1600s when he was exploring the area, but that's probably not true. Most scientists feel that he was probably describing gar, which, to be fair, are terrifying, so that's understandable, Um, but it probably was not champ. So we're not going to be discussing that here. There's also a supposed report from the early 1800s, but it's not really universally accepted either. And it wasn't something that I found in my research, so I didn't um, then go try to pursue it because it wasn't something that's generally accepted. Really, the consensus is that the sightings really started to be a thing in the 1870s. And they, I mean, they quickly became a big deal. There were periods of time where there was a new report each week in at least one of the local newspapers. And you've got to think also that this is a pretty long lake. Um, there's lots of prominent towns on both the north, um, on both the New York and the Vermont sides of the lake. So, I mean, lots of newspapers, lots of sightings, lots of reports. Um, but here is some quotes from those reports. So... From the Rutland Daily Globe, August 12, 1873, some of the laborers on the New York and Canada Railroad have seen a monster in Lake Champlain. 
He has often been seen before, but this time it is only twenty feet in length, and yet it has already dragged two calves from their pasture into the water. So then in the Burlington Weekly Free Press, August 1st, 1873, there is a monster going faster than any steamer you know, thirty feet of his body in full view, showing a string of bunches on his back, made the whole bay boil when he turned, and elevating his head high in the air, shook his terrible mane to the wonderment of all beholders. And then the St. Johnsbury Caledonian, May 30th, 1879. The Lake Champlain water monster has been seen again, this time by a trustworthy and temperate farmer. He describes it as having a head like a serpent, only much larger, showing fifteen feet of its body above the water and making a noise like the discharge of a gun. So, um, again, this is like just a snapshot, but it it shows some of the things that were uh, mentioned in the reports. And so then I... I want to clearly make the point. I mean, this is not all of the evidence. There is an enormous amount, and I could spend hours just reading the reports, but I wanted to hit the highlights, and so let's get into some takeaways. Um, one of the things that I noticed when I was reading the newspapers was this quickly became sort of like a political arms race. Um, so again, Lake Champlain is on the border of New York and Vermont, and between 1853 and 1903, Vermont had statewide prohibition of alcohol, while New York did not, and the newspapers reflect that. I mean, the Vermont newspapers in particular got quite nasty in calling New Yorkers liars and drunkards and worse. I mean... Just because they didn't use curse words that we use today does not mean they were not scalding. Um, it seems like there was kind of a, a race for the so-called right side, whatever that side might have been, to um, discover Champ first or it was something. I, it was a lot of name-calling. And it, I mean, it, I think it's something that all of us in the conspiracy theory kind of uh, community experience today is that oh, you're just a conspiracy theorist, you're just a this or that. And, um, you know, back then, they didn't have the concept of conspiracy theory. I mean, the phrase conspiracy, conspiracy theory was obviously coined by the CIA, you know, much later. But back then, what they had was, oh, you're just a lush, you're just a drunkard, you're just, you know... And I'm sorry, but like I don't think these people were drinking that much absinthe, and I don't think that I can't think of any other alcohol that has any psychedelic properties. So I I don't think you're just going to imagine that you saw a giant lake monster while totally trashed. Um, but hey, that's just me. I've I've never once while drunk thought I saw a lake monster. I can tell you that for sure. Um, Another thing that I noticed was that a lot of these sightings are from quite a distance. Um, one article actually mentioned that it was compared that that particular report was quite comparatively close, and it as it was only half a mile, which you know still extremely far for the human eye to pick anything out. Um, that's not you know a couple hundred feet. That's a couple thousand feet, and it just reminds me of that scene in My Cousin Vinny 
where Vinny is asking Mrs. Riley how many fingers he's uh, she, he's holding up, and um, the judge is like, "Let the record show the defendant is hold or the counselor is holding up two fingers." <laughs> it's like, well, thanks for defeating the point. Um, but anyway, seeing anything at such a distance is just going to be rife for, with error. Um, in what you think you're seeing, no matter if you are Mrs. Riley and blind as a bat or uh, a 10 year old with perfect vision. So that's something to consider. I know um, one of the things that we'll mention later, the Mansi photograph, that report, they said that they were, you know, a couple hundred feet away. Still, it's something where it's, you're not right on top of it. It could be a little confusing, but I mean, these old reports are, pretty far away so um and you've got to consider that you know uh things like glasses were not except um is easily accessible for all socioeconomic classes back then um and not everyone's just gonna have like binoculars or a telescope i mean they certainly obviously did not have cell phones where they could pinch and zoom on your camera to see what is going on out in the water half a mile away or even further. So these people are going to be a little less reliable than I would have initially expected. Um, I was kind of surprised to see that. Um, another thing is that sightings come in waves with many in a single year and then none for like several years until the next wave in, of incidents. So you do kind of have that, uh, I don't want to say mass hysteria, but power of suggestion when it comes to a one person saw this thing and then there's a string of sightings afterwards. Now that could be the same, um, thing, you know, that, that same effect could be caused by a rare uh, creature coming into the lake and staying there for a month and then leaving again and then making its way back to the lake in a few years. That is possible, but I do want to mention the power of suggestion there. So, um, in general, the sightings agree that it is a large animal and that several feet of neck can still um, can, can be seen sticking out of the water. But some of these descriptors that they use are just really interesting. They're not really reported ubiquitously enough for me to believe that it's a factual description. Um, at the very least, it's hard for me to tell between what might be factual description and what might be fluffy language to kind of exaggerate the report. I mean, these are newspapers reporters and they are trying to sell newspapers, right? Um, but, you know, for example, some of the things where it makes the water appear to be boiling, it makes the sound, the sound like a gunshot, it has a mane, it has, you know, humps or bunches on its back. And one report even mentioned that the monster had a bioluminescence that made it glow. Um, and then finally, to get back to the 1851 article I mentioned, you know, this indicates to me that the citizens of the area would have maybe been a little bit pre-programmed to expect a serpent of some sort could live in the waters. Um, at the very least, they're certainly putting together, associating the concept of a sea serpent with Lake Champlain. And so you're going to be more likely to 
exact uh expand on that association and come back to that association if you see something a little questionable in the waters right so that is um you know something we need to consider here so let's discuss some of the reasons why the human mind may have been pre-programmed to see a sea serpent of some sort because i mentioned that the people in the 18 70s would have been less likely to expect a sea serpent than someone in the 1970s who had already been hearing about the champ legend for a hundred years but it's entirely possible that it's that's not the case that someone in the 1870s might have been just as pre-programmed to expect a sea serpent as someone in the 1970s regardless of the champ legend so all of these witnesses in the 1870s would have probably known the Bible story of the Leviathan. I mean, it is a, religion was much more ubiquitous back then, and religious education was relatively prominent in the home because of, you know, lack of TV, lack of radio, lack of um, electricity at night so you may be reading the candle uh, reading the bible to the family by candlelight to entertain them um so you know just because they're christian doesn't necessarily mean that they would know the story but biblical uh biblical teaching in the home was much more common back then so we have to assume that at the very least they would have heard it once or twice in their lifetime so I want to read Job 41 here. This is just one reference to the Leviathan from the Bible, but it's a really detailed one. And so I thought it would be a good one to include here. So I'll be reading from the New King James. If you know anything about uh, biblical versions, the King James is the version that the people of the the Protestant Americans of the 1870s would have been familiar with. But for your sake and mine, the New New King James has the same content, but it is in Queen Elizabeth II's English instead of Queen Elizabeth Queen Elizabeth I's English. So there's a lot more, less these, thous, thines, whatever. So it might be a little bit easier for us to parse through here. So, Job 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook, or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose, or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make any supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? Will your companions make a, bo a banquet for him? Will they apportion him among the servant merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons, or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him, remember the battle, never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his graceful proportions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. 
One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together and cannot be parted. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes out of his mouth. Strength dwells in his neck, and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. Because of his crashings, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail. Nor does spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. His undersides are like sharp pot shards. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. He makes the deep pot. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. On earth there is nothing like him, which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. So notice the verse about the water boiling like a pot. We see that mentioned in reports. And then also notice how the verse um, that about him le like leaving a shining wake behind him that would make the water look like it had white hair. Again, um, so we see bioluminescence mentioned in the reports. And I, that's how I interpret it interpret that verse is that we the shining wake and the white hair of the of the ocean would be like a bioluminescence as he as he swims through so my thought here is that if the champ champ reports align with specific details of the leviathan narrative then the people are probably pulling that information out of the legend and not from their specific account encounters um and then also I want to mention here that some people write off the Leviathan legends as a description of a crocodile, but that's a really narrow-sided take. Leviathan-like legends exist across many cultures, including in Norse mythology, where Thor kills the Jormungandr, Jormungandr, I think is how that's pronounced, <laughs> also known as the World Serpent, and there are no crocodiles in Scandinavia. But actually, I'm really glad that I didn't read Job 41 uh, before I did all this research. Because if I had read this, I mean, I, I was kind of familiar with the story, but I hadn't read it in a long time. And so I couldn't rem I didn't remember little details like he makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pond of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. I, I couldn't remember that. I It was not playing in my brain, right? So then... After I read, if I had read that and then read the newspaper articles, I honestly, I wouldn't have researched further. I would have stopped there because to me, it's like, oh, okay, well, 
this is just what this is. Like, they're literally just describing Leviathan. So, you know, they're just be they're just mistaken and they're coming up with this legend that they've heard their whole life. Um, I'm glad that I did. <laughs> like I said, I'm glad that I didn't because I think there was a, there's a lot more that we can discuss, um, getting into this, but, but I do think that's really interesting that there's so much that aligns between the accounts of champ and the accounts of Leviathan. Um, other texts that could have had an impact on the people's perception were Moby Dick, published in 1851, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, 20,000 Leagues was published, um, well, it was first published between 1869 and 1870 as a serial um, in French, <laughs> but it was not published in English until 1872. So I don't think it could have had a... I don't think it could have affected the 1873 sightings, but it could have affected sightings in the later 1870s and beyond. I myself was reminded of the language of 20,000 Leagues when I was first reading the newspaper accounts. I didn't remember the Leviathan stories, like I just said. And so, um, you know, when I read 20,000 Leagues, that's, or I'm sorry, when I read the newspapers, I was thinking 20,000 Leagues. The connections are there. Um, it's just that my brain was thinking that the connections between 20,000 Leagues and the newspapers, as in like, they might've been pulling from 20,000 Leagues when they were writing their newspaper articles. But in reality, it's two separate things that the newspapers were pulling from the Leviathan story, as was independently the 20,000 Leagues account or narrative by Jules Verne pulling from the Leviathan story. You know, for example, I read the bioluminescence specifically as a similarity to how the submarine is initially described in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but I'd completely forgotten that there was bioluminescence in the Leviathan legend. So that's a mistake that I made at the beginning of this research. And I think it's a natural one to make if you just haven't read the Leviathan story in a while, but either way you can see themes arising from the witness statements that align with the sea serpent legend. And that makes me think that, you know, we kind of have to, um, I don't want to say poo poo, but take grains of salt with all of these witness accounts and, and understand that they are as much legend, um, as the Leviathan story, as 20,000 Leagues, etc. I mean, quite frankly, if you've ever heard anyone, anyone tell their fishing stories, um, or even their hunting stories, us hunters are not immune. Um, but, you know, those fishing stories, they can really, you can stretch some really, really tall tales out of fish that are, you know, perfectly normal, perfectly, um, common. So if even if, if they saw something that was then maybe a little rare or a little um, unusual, then they might have just stretched that truth all the way to it was the Leviathan. Um, so I'm, you know, it's kind of like, well, what even is it if we can't trust the earliest reports, right? So, um, it it's it's possible that it's nothing. I'm currently at this point in the um, articles and uh, research and all that. 
thinking that it's nothing, but let's keep going through the all the different possible theories that it could be, and then we can can discuss what some final determinations might be. Um, so I wanted to get into the theories of what the monster is, but I want to start with the debunking theories that I found in the literature and then move on to a couple of my own debunking theories and then finally discuss the cryptozoological angle. It's also important to note, just like I said earlier, that all of the witness statements might not be gospel, might be a little more floof than fact. It's also important to note that no one answer that I'm going to come, that we're going to discuss describes the accounts as a whole. I mean, it's, it's a combination of them, right? Because not everything can be put under one blanket statement. Some of these are going to be false. Some of these are not going to be false. Some of these are going to be one thing, some or another, and everyone's just expecting to see champ. And so they're making it happen with their brain. Um, but anyway, what we want to do is try to come up with the best solution that accounts for the most amount of testimony. And so that's what we're going to try to do here. So the first theory we have is Delphineptaris leucus, AKA the beluga whale. It's also the state fossil of Vermont and they can, um, well, they are found in obviously the oceanic side of Vermont, but they can sometimes visit fresh water. We know that they range into the St. Lawrence, Lawrence river. Um, and just, you know, for a little geog geography lesson here, we've got Lake Champlain in the border between New York in Vermont. It actually flows North and then Richelieu river runs out of Lake Champlain in Canada and goes up into the, and it tees off at the St. Lawrence river and flows there to the ocean through the St. Lawrence river. So if they're in the St. Lawrence river, then it's possible that they could swim upstream through the Richelieu river and into Lake Champlain. Theoretically possible, but it is hundreds of miles upriver, and I don't think that we have accounts of beluga whales going that far. Also, a beluga whale wouldn't really account for the sightings of a neck poking several feet out of the water anyway, but I could see how a beluga whale is odd enough if you're expecting to see only fish in Lake Champlain, you wouldn't be thinking of a whale, especially not a beluga whale with that weird dome on its head that it uses for echolocation. I think it's, I know that the organ itself is called a melon, but I don't know. I can't remember offhand what they're weird. Um, cause there's, there's is like, you know, hello. It's just like massive. Um, but anyway, I'm going to say that I don't think it's, of a legal whale, but it's something that people have thrown out there. But that's also, to me, that's also like saying Bigfoot is just bears standing on their back legs. It's like, mm, probably not. The next theory we have to discuss is pec Pectinatella magnifica. And this stuff is disgusting. It's like this gelatinous blob 
it's actually a colony of invertebrates, but it forms this goo and it forms these colonies that are could be like two feet wide. So you just see this giant mass of floating goo and it is gross. And I get how that could be something unusual that people would see and not understand, but I do not see how that would, you know, serve the purpose of matching the sightings. I mean, it, you're, you're not going to have a neck sticking out of the water. It's not going to be big enough. And quite frankly, at some of these distances, that they're saying in the air, that they're reporting in these articles, I'm not sure that you would see this two-foot-wide blob um, floating in the lake. Uh, you know, it might just look like a shadow. So, to me, not very compelling. The next is log or shipwreck. And this is something that I'm kind of going to lump together because they're both inanimate objects and they could both be on the lake bottom poking up or possibly you know part of it broken off and floating through um so something to know is that parts of the lake are quite deep but parts are quite shallow for example mrs mrs Qua bay is less than four meters deep and then and four meters is just a little over 13 feet so it wouldn't be that hard for something to be sticking up above the surface in only 13 feet of water um much less on the edges of the bay where it's going to be even more shallow. One of the big years for sightings was 1873, and there's a diary from East Montpelier, Vermont, that recorded a drought from 1870 to 1874. So it is possible that the water levels in 1873 had had become reduced enough that shrapnel on the lake bottom was starting to become visible on the surface. Um... And so at the very least, it's something we've got to consider, right? And actually, a log is the prevailing debunking theory for the Mansi photograph. So the Mansi photograph is considered essentially like the holy grail of champ evidence. It was taken by Sandra Mansi in 1977. And if you know anything about Bigfoot, you know, as a Bigfoot enthusiast myself, it the Mansi photograph is to champ what the Patterson Gimlin film is to um is to Bigfoot or at least maybe that still um the famous still uh what is it like frame 83 or something like that um of the Patterson Gimlin film if you're going to consider you know a still photograph being the Mansi photograph you know um if you're going to have a true analogy sure but either way, I mean, it's basically a Rorschach test, an inkblot test. Everyone sees what they want to see. Um, if you don't believe in Bigfoot, if you think Bigfoot's crap, the Patterson-Gimlin film is never going to convince you that it's not. And if you're a Bigfoot enthusiast, a Bigfoot enthusiast, no evidence about the Patterson-Gimlin film is ever going to prove you, prove to you that you don't see those muscles rippling under there. Now, obviously, Bigfoot enthusiast here... I think it's real, um, but I've I've seen a lot of takes on a film that personally I you know I look at it and I see that is Bigfoot, that is Bigfoot walking, and that is a suit that I mean, quite frankly, if they had the technology to do that, Star Wars Chewie would have been so much more interesting, right? But he wasn't, and. The Patterson Gimlin film wasn't. Um, 
you know, that's not something that they could have created. That's a real Bigfoot in my opinion. But I've seen such a range of reactions to it that I I really think that it's one of those things where you're just going to see what you're going to see. And I think that's what the Mansi photograph is. Looking at the Mansi photograph, I totally see um, where you could, you know, when I look at it, I see an animal with its head sticking out. But also, I grew up on dinosaur movies, and I grew up on Nessie. And so, I'm pre-programmed, and I acknowledge that. Um, but the last point on the logs and the shipwrecks is that both are very fairly common. Um, we've got to consider that the 18 late uh, late 1800s is is the era of log driving. And Burlington, Vermont, which is on Lake Champlain, was actually a major destination for those logs. It's completely conceivable that a log got away from the drivers and someone didn't realize what they were seeing. It's also completely conceivable that there was just a downed uh, tree on the edge that got, um, you know, was either floating out into the shore, uh, in the lake, or even... Um, you know, got, uh, was actually more like on the shoreline and people were seeing it from so far away that they thought that it was further away from the shoreline than it was. Um, but then again, the fact that these were so common could also be a reason why it wouldn't be that. Because the people who frequented the lake would have been familiar enough with logs and shipwrecks to be able to discount them, one would think at least. So, um, you know, that's unfortunately... That is one of those things where you're never going to be able to disapprove 100 or you're not going to be able to disprove or really even prove 100 years later that it was a log or a shipwreck or this or that. Um, you know, people discuss the log theory in particular with the Mansi photograph because at least it's something we have a physical copy of and so we can see what she was seeing. And, uh, you know, she says that it just popped up. And kind of, I think it maybe even like turned its head a little bit and then whipped back down almost as fast as it went up. And she just happened to snap the photograph at the exact right time. Um, you know, to me, that's a little fishy because like it's, you know, it's not right now. It's still 1977. You'd think that if it was popping up and popping down as fast as she said, the picture would be a little more blurry, but... It's possible that something's just lost in translation there. Um, anyway, that's a whole the digression. Um, but a couple of debunk theories that I kind of came up with as I was reading the newspaper articles. Uh, the first one that I thought was alligator or hippopotamus. Um, just in the sense that like something that could be on land or in the water. Because you have to account for the land sightings and the livestock killings as well as the typical lake sightings. Um, but nothing like that is known up there. I mean, there's no allig there's no crocodilians up there. And obviously the hippopotamus lives in Africa, not um, America. Um, but, but either way, so if there's, if there's something real like that, then it falls back into the cryptozoological category, which, you know, we'll revisit later. But that was kind of the first thing I was thinking when I was reading the articles was like, okay, well, we've got land and... Um, livestock killings as well as the the lake sightings. 
another one was actually the a, a beaver, you know? So, okay, what if instead of being far away and huge, it's actually closer and something the size of a beaver? Um, and the main reason I think think this or mention this is because beaver will actually beavers will actually slap their tail to move people away from their lodge, and so you know it's possible that instead of slapping their tail, uh, I'm sorry, instead of the head being what you see coming out of the water, it's actually the butt, the tail coming out of the water. Um, but that is like very, it's a very fast motion. So it's not necessarily something that you would, um, you know, it would be sitting up there for a while, right? They're not like swimming around with their tail up in the air or anything like that. Um, that would be a little bit different if they'd done that, but no, they, it's really fast movement. But, you know, like for example, the Mansi photograph, like I just said, I mean, she describes it as being, um, coming up quickly and then going back down. So it's just a thought. I, I, I don't put too much credence into it, but I think we have to, I think it's a healthy exercise to explore where our brain might go. Um, and then the other one was just, I mean, the 20,000 leagues under the sea theory. This is exactly what I thought of at first, because like I said before, I, I you know, I, it was just triggering 20,000 leagues under the sea for me. In reality, that would have been the Leviathan similarities, but what if the 20,000 leagues under the sea theory is true? That an advanced machine thought to be a sea monster, um, or at least that's, if you don't know the story, they are, go out for hunting for this like notorious whale, this nor, well, they think it's a whale possibly, this notorious creature that's been seen and has been ramming ships. And so they go out and they're trying to harpoon this creature and they get pulled onto, or well, they get pulled into the ocean and they think they're going to die. These two characters, um, the two main characters. And then they realize they're actually standing on the creature. And then they realize that the creature is metal. And it, what it is, is this famous or well, not famous, but, um, very rich captain, Captain Nemo has, um, undergone some tragedy in his life essentially gone crazy and decided to create his own underwater colony. And he has this like technologically advanced, uh, submarine that can essentially sustain itself forever. They actually go, um, on scuba missions or what it's not actually a scuba tank, but it's scuba like concept. Um, underwater to go hunting for um, fish and they harvest seaweed and stuff like that and so that's literally their diet and then he's figured out some other things as far as uh, you know getting oxygen down there and all that but one of the things that it has is a, a bioluminescent glow that actually uh, lights up the interior of the submarine and so you you see why I maybe if been triggering a few of these thoughts while I was reading the newspaper accounts. So my question was, well, okay. So I know that they had subs in the civil war. I mean, most people don't know that, but 
They did have subs in the Civil War. They weren't effective. Uh, the French had a sub uh, slightly after our Civil War that is what Jules Verne actually saw in a show. And that inspired him to write 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So there had they had some marine, uh, submarine technology at the time. Wasn't obviously as advanced as what they were talking about in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, but it is a sci-fi movie. We know that the military has technology today that us peasants won't have for like another forty years or so. For example, GPS was used by the military in Vietnam, but was not widely available to the public until, I mean, really, cell phones. Um, you know, we while we all had the like flip phones, we had the Garmin. Uh, you know, suction cup to our dash and our cars and all that. Um, but it's, you know, it's something where the, it became available to us peasants, the lay people significantly after um, the military was using it. And so it's also widely ex- suspected that many alien UFO sightings are just military tests of, of equipment that we can't even fathom. Because we're just not there yet. So it is possible. Um, but, you know, that's the centralized government of today. Government back then was not nearly so centralized. I mean, what they didn't have a CIA. They didn't have an FBI. They didn't have military intelligence. They didn't have NASA. You know, all of these different programs that would have that same kind of function today, um, they didn't have back then. And also, I just can't find anything to back this up. You know, there isn't any documentation of some, like, eccentric millionaire building a submarine to permanently live underwater. Uh, (laughs) And as we discussed before, you know, I just, once I reread the Leviathan myth in Job 41, there's just so many similarities there that I think um, that, you know, I can see where my brain went to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but I think that's just, you know, a Leviathan reference. It's not anything uh, based in an actual fact. And so, uh, pardon me, man, these last few days are really catching up to me. I I really don't think that there's anything there, but it is fun to think about, right? I mean, Captain Nemo, well, he's kind of a dirtbag. Well, I say that he's a dirtbag because he saw his whole life taken away from him and his wife and daughter slaughtered by the governments of the world and he's just like I mean it's like if Elon Musk was like yo um I'm rich and you guys suck so I'm just gonna like piece it out to Mars and live by myself you know or something like that um also if you haven't read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea I totally recommend it the only thing is so my dad really enjoys the book and he has been try he had been trying to get me to read it for forever and I finally read it because um at the last little bit of my pregnancy I was not able to um get up and move around a lot I had um some placenta issues that led to some blood pressure issues and they were like oh yeah just live for the last like month of your pregnancy staying on your left side and not getting out of bed I mean, not really, but kind of. Uh, and then at the very end, I mean, it was like I was checking into the hospital a couple of times because my blood pressure was like 150 over 105. And they were like, oh, my gosh, it's so bad. But I had no symptoms other than that. So it wasn't a big deal. Anyway, I finally read the book 
And I was so disappointed at the end. So if you're going to be disappointed by an anticlimactic finish, don't read it. Because they get through this, like, they're about to have this big battle with these people that are finally coming for uh, Captain Nemo. And then just, like, uh, the... Um, the narrator, the main character, gets knocked out just in time for the big battle, and he and the other guy, the harpooner that got put on this submarine with him, just like end up on shore. They get sucked into a whirlpool and end up on shore, and you have no idea if Captain Nemo and the submarine survive. You have no idea how the battle went. You just know have no idea. You have no idea. I mean. With the exception of the fact that they're in, like, Finland now, you wouldn't even necessarily know that anything actually happened. It could have just been a dream. For all you know, he's dreaming that he's in Finland. I don't know. It was just so disappointing to see these, like, really rich descriptions of the boat or the submarine and everything inside of it and I want that library I want to live in that library it's got like 12,000 volumes I think is what it said and I'm just obsessed but anyway super anticlimactic and I was really really disappointed but back away from this digression let's get back into the concept of could it be real well possible so if we think about the concept of how the lake was created um, and this actually is something that does apply to Loch Ness as well Lake Champlain and Loch Ness were both created about 10,000 years ago after being sealed off from the Atlantic Ocean so the rising well global temperature rose about roughly 10,000 years ago. And those rising temperatures made the glaciers melt. Well, with the reduced weight on top of the land, it made the land rise and it cut off the lake from the sea. And this actually does fit in really nicely with the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis from Rand Randall Carlson. Um, I think that uh, Grim Hancock has talked about this. Um, and really promoted Randall's work. It's really fascinating when you think about um, all the different cultures that um, have something tying back to this period. And so we do have to, uh, you know, it, it ties into so many other things. And so I don't want to get into the weeds on that. I do want to kind of limit it, but I do think it's interesting that the, how these lakes were created um, does line up with a known and discussed uh, hypothesis of our changing climate. Either way, there's a warming at the end of the Younger Dryas theory, or at the Younger Dryas period. And so that's what created those lakes, instead of it being a marine or even estuary type of location. Um, and so... You know, other places that we've seen this is Lake Nicaragua. So we've got this possibility that there might have been an animal that was originally marine, but then gradually became aquatic or aquaflexible, let's say, after the lake was sealed off from the ocean and transformed into fresh water. And we see this in Lake Nicaragua. 
Lake Nicaragua is a freshwater lake that is completely cut off from the ocean, and it does have a sliver on its western side of land between the lake and the ocean that's about like 12 miles, I think, maybe, but the river that's flowing out of the lake is actually flows east to the ocean, and it is like 120 miles or something like that. Even still, Lake Nicaragua has bull sharks, it has tarpon, and it has sawfish. And those are just the ones they know about. Although, quite frankly, the um, the, the sawfish and the tarpon and the bull sharks are so visible in Lake Nicaragua because it's so pretty and so clear that I think that if there was something else, at least something else big, that they would know about it. But anyway... There's tagging studies that they've done because for a while that the, these they were thinking that these bull sharks were actually it was called the Lake Nicaragua shark and this is what I learned back in school was that it was the Lake Nicaragua shark and it was completely it was the world's only freshwater shark because it had been cut off by the ocean or by the volcano and it had gradually become a freshwater shark and it was um and it was the only one in the world, and it was like this amazing example. Well, they uh, interestingly, I actually learned that in Spanish class, not in biology class, but um, the but ta- they've done tagging studies, and the tagging studies show that there is back and forth, especially for the bull sharks. And bull bull sharks are, um, they're tolerant for a wide range. They can osmoregulate, and and as can tarpon and sawfish, but um, bull sharks, they can they can osmoregulate, but they do have to go back into the ocean to breed, uh, as far as we know. Um, and so that is something that's interesting is that it, they these populations will live in Lake Nicaragua in the fresh water, but then transition out for breeding, um, and then come back to the lake later. So we've got an example at least of animals that are living in a lake that was formerly part of the ocean has been sealed off and become fresh water that um, at the very least they are aqua flexible they can osmoregulate and so they are uh, technically a marine species but they're living in an aquatic environment and uh, can survive in both locations so we've got that example it so it's reasonable to assume that it is possible that it could happen on a grander scale. It's possible it could happen with something other than a bull shark. Um, We just don't know exactly what that would be. But I want to talk about these images because all of these images that they're coming up with based on the reports look like something out of land before time. It's, it's a sauropod dinosaur. It really is just, I mean, straight out of uh, Jurassic World or something like that. Um, Or, uh, I mean, really, Littlefoot in Land Before Time. I mean, that's exactly what it looks like. So to me, it just just doesn't seem right, right? You know, like, the body does not seem right for the behavior that they're describing. First of all, let's talk about these these, uh, livestock killings long necks like that I mean that's seen on herbivores not predators I mean first of all that's just it's so lengthy that's too much length 
too much space for a prey to hurt you. And quite frankly, it probably limits the torque that you can achieve on your neck muscles. I mean, first, you know, you neck is definitely the most vulnerable place on a body. Um, it's, it's something that is ubiquitous across species and we don't even realize it. So in humans, we display fealty and submission by kneeling because you're presenting your neck in a physically disadvantaged way where you're not going to really be able to fight back if someone were to attack your neck at that point. And so it's showing that I submit to you, I trust you, I believe that you are not going to murder me in this moment. And so it's a display of trust to kneel in front of somebody, right? But then also wolves, uh, that is how they show um, submission in their pecking order is is by, uh, you know, getting when uh, when wolf pups are learning their learning how to play they are also learning you know how to how do you uh you know get their fellow wolf on their back so that they can put their mouth around their neck to show dominance over that that wolf that they have under their neck under their uh, in their jaws and and this is the same in dogs now also um you know since they came out of wolves Actually, 10 out of 10, I would recommend putting your mouth around your dog's neck. <laughs> um, I know that sounds weird, but I do it, well, I don't do it for my big dog because, uh, well, my jaws aren't that wide, and also he's such a love puppy anyway, but my little 20-pound uh, crap dog, um, rat dog, honestly, is, uh, I mean, he's a lap dog, but he's just, he's a prince, but he's also just well, he's really more like princess. He's a real pain in the butt. Um, and has a lot of attitude. So every once in a while, I'll just get him on his back, which he does not like, but I get him on his back and I put my mouth on his neck and he calms down because he realizes that I'm the boss. So if you're having issues with a dog, I 10 out of 10 recommend. Um, but then, so getting back to the neck for alligators, dogs, everything, if predators in general, like if you're, um, attacking a prey, yes, like your bite is important and the, the grip that you're, the pressure of your bite, the grip of your bite is important, but you're actually going to be doing the killing with the thrashing. You're not doing the killing with, you know, it's not like you're crunching down because if you were to release those jaws, then your prey can get away. So you actually kill by clamping down and then thrashing. And I just don't see how an animal with that long of a neck is going to do any thrashing at all, much less be credibly accused of stealing cows and such. I mean, they could probably eat like fish um, or something like that, just given the size that like if you're a 20 foot animal, you know, you're probably going to have some small fish that you can eat, but like stealing livestock, I mean, that's just ridiculous. So uh, personal opinion, that lost livestock was probably stolen by the people who made the claim and just said, oh, the lake monster took it. Like this is, you know, I mean, the dog ate your homework is just looping back around with another version. Um, generally, semi-aquatic animals are going to have stumpier legs and sleeker bodies. So, you know, alligator 
stumpy little legs, otters, little legs, beaver, platypus, just something that they can like pull in and really have a long, lean, hydrodynamic form. Um, the only animal that I can think of in the water that has a similar body style or at least similar legs to um, to what they're you know describing with this sauropod dinosaur is the hippopotamus which you know so it doesn't have the long tail it doesn't have the long neck but it does have the big barrel chest and the columnar legs and ironically the hippos are most closely related to whales and other cetaceans uh, but they're not sleek <laughs> Um, it's just, it, that's just funny to me that the, like the, you know, these are just like the beefiest semi-aquatic animals and yet their closest relative is the fully aquatic cetaceans. Um, it's just, it's an interesting juxtaposition to me, but what we see in hippos is they can't actually swim in the way they think they're in the way we think, I'm sorry, they're swimming consists of more like floating and then walking underwater. So then if we were to extrapolate that a lake monster with a similar trunk and leg structure would also walk underwater, you know, this is impossible given the depth of Lake Champlain specifically, but really any lake where lake monsters have been seen. And so I, this doesn't seem like it's possible for me either. Um, it just doesn't make sense. It, you know, I don't, I don't see how it's possible if you're looking at this anatomy that they're suggesting that it matches along with the behavior that they're suggesting. One of those two things is not, is not working for me. At the very least, them together is not working for me. And then another aspect to this is that the discovery of supposed dinosaurs descended into the Bone Wars or the Great Dinosaur Rush as it's known in the late 19th century. And it's reasonable to assume that these discoveries would have been published in newspapers. It kind of became like a big deal. And it's also possible, probable, definite that a lot of those dinosaurs that they came up with weren't actually real because they were just trying to, um, it was a race to publish type of thing. And so they were just actually interesting conspiracy theory is that dinosaurs don't even exist that they just like found one bone and then they extrapolated this entire skeleton out of it um for a lot of these creatures and there aren't nearly as many complete skeletons as one would assume and pretty much every skeleton that you see in a museum is actually a mold from different parts um but yeah, there's a lot that came out of the Bone Wars that just weren't real. <laughs> they found like a vertebrae and were like, ooh, new species. Um, or they took a head off one and put it on the body of another and were like, ooh, new species. Um, so if these accounts were found in the newspapers, which I didn't look for, but uh, I would assume would be in there. Um, certainly the drama around... Um, the two paleontologists was in, found in certain newspapers, so it's reasonable to think that at the ver that some of the uh, actual discoveries themselves would have been in some of the newspapers, and maybe they weren't in, you know, say the Burlington newspaper, but they could have been in the New York newspaper, the New York City 
newspaper and could have, you know, maybe, hey, my cousin saw this thing. Wow, isn't that scary? And that could have further primed people to believe the monsters were real and also to be visually seeing something that the um, that kind of aligns with that dinosaur aesthetic. I have seen some images of like, you know, the kind of a dinosaur type of thing, but instead of legs, it has fins similar to like, um, uh, not even really whale fins, but kind of. Um, and that I think is, if you're, if you're going to have some sort of cryptid lake monster that no one's discovered, I think that's kind of your best bet. I don't think that it is the, um, I don't think it's a columnar leg form that looks more like a hippopotamus. I just don't think that's possible. So, what taxonomy could this follow? What might have been the closest relative to this hypothetical creature if we're going to have one? Well, um, the first would be the shark. The bull shark, prime example, large fish, maxing out around 10 feet known to be able to survive in freshwater and has been found actually 700 miles up the Mississippi River in Ohio, which is like wild. Can you imagine being in Ohio and being like, holy crap, that's a shark. I, this blo like blows my mind. And they, they are known to be as far north as Massachusetts. So if it's going to be a shark, the bull shark is already pretty close. I mean, it's not quite as far north as it would have to be, but it is pretty far north. And it does have the ability to go in fresh water. And it's not necessarily as big as they say, but it is pretty big. So um, I, I do think the bull shark is a good example of what it could be. But the idea that these sightings wouldn't mention a shark-like dorsal fin, if this is a relative of a shark, it just seems unlikely, right? I mean, everyone... Granted, again, pre-programming, Jaws, the movie, but I, I think the, everyone kind of knows what a shark, a shark fin looks like, right? So I think that we have to take that off the table because if it was, um, I mean, if it had a dorsal fin, people would have mentioned that. So then the next one is the cephalopod. And actually, I will mention, I did not mention this earlier when I was discussing debunking theories because it doesn't really apply to champ. But um, for sea serpents, like truly out in the sea, not just like lake monsters, one of the prevailing theories is a squid moving backward where they've actually lifted one of their tentacles out of the water. That, again, oh my goodness. That lifting of the tentacle out of the water is what would be like the neck of the animal, but cephalopods can't osmoregulate. So it's not going to be in a freshwater situation. And so we can't really, uh, we can't use that theory at Lake Champlain. And I'm going to have to assume that any close relative of a cephalopod would also not be able to osmoregulate. And so that one was also off the table. And then we've got alligator uh, or other some sort of crocodilian. And this is kind of that Lake Placid theory. If you remember the Lake Placid movie where Betty White was raising a crocodile in Maine or actually like a family of crocodiles. 
But in reality, no crocodilian species lives in temperate zones. They are congregated in the tropics with some distribution in the subtropics, but nothing in the temperate zones. Um, now there are fossils, crocodilian fossils in Wyoming and Utah, but also the weather in Wyoming and Utah wasn't always that cold. Um, you know, so it's possible that that wasn't necessarily a temperate zone in the time when that fossil would have been a living creature. Um, to find a crocodilian, a large crocodilian living in a lake so far north, given their ectothermic nature... And their current distribution seems unlikely. I mean, where where are you going to go sunning? You're on the banks of Lake Champlain in winter, you know? It's just not possible. So I don't see that that's another option. That's an option, but um, it is something I thought of when I was reading the story is just based on the behavior they were accounting for and also <laughs> the Lake Placid movie. Um so then the next would be turtles. Uh, you know, there are some sea turtles that are pretty big. And when you think about a, something that has a head that could stick out of the water, I mean, turtles are definitely one of those things I think of. And there are two types of turtles, which I did not realize um, until I was doing this research. There are side-necked turtles and there are hidden-necked turtles. And it's actually a function of their vertebrae and how they are formed. And so a hidden necked, um, a hidden neck turtle is not going to have much side to side motion, but they're able to pull that head straight back into the, uh, in, into the shell to hide. Whereas side necked, they aren't going to be able to do that level of, of pulling, but they can turn side to side quite well. And so they actually hide their head by turning their head into their shell on the side. But um, it's one of those things where it's kind of, it, it's not both. It's one or the other. And so it's not necessarily something that would completely account for all of the uh, movements that are described, but um, it could account for some. Most turtles are hidden-necked, but um, I would say that the side-necked kind of matches that turning movement that's described more often. The problem with that is that they aren't that big. Even the biggest fossil of a side-necked turtle only had a shell that was about seven and a half feet long. And side-necked turtles are only found in the southern hemisphere, so this doesn't seem likely. Um, if we're going to then look at these hidden-necked turtles... Well, the largest ever fossil uh, was 15 feet long. The largest currently is the leatherback turtle, which can be about 10 feet long and exists in really almost every ocean. So at least the size is there. Um, and actually, specifically, there is a population that is no defeat in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, which, you know, you're in the right ballpark. Um, sea turtles can sometimes be found in freshwater, but they usually don't make it very far. Uh, they can't see in fresh water hardly at all because, you know, most fresh water is quite silty. And they often end up on mud flats due to confusion. Now, I say often, that is a subsample based on people finding them on mud flats. It's entirely possible that uh, 
they, you know, they're underwater and just no one knows because they can't see them because the water is cloudy. Um, it's definitely a self-selecting sample for turtles that can't, <laughs> you know, get off the mud flats. So, um, it is, you know, it's possible that the turtles are not, the sea turtles are not quite so inept as they um, might seem. I can't, you know, I can't rule it out. I certainly at least can't rule out that it might have been one case of mistaken identity. Um, you know, it's, it's not something where this is the uh, exact, like, you know, it can account for one one of these stories and then just get confused, get stuck on a mud flat and die. And it, it doesn't really necessarily have to account for all the stories. It doesn't have to be something where it survives all the time. Um, but it is something that I think has a strong possibility of at least having a close relative that could be discovered. Um, I mean, if you're going to be discovering a new species, I think this is a good... Uh, it's certainly closer than what we've we've already discussed. So the last one I want to mention is cetaceans. That's the whales and dolphins. The largest toothed cetacean is the sperm whale at 20 meters or 66 feet. So, like, we definitely have the possibility of size, right? They have blubber. They can thermoregulate. Northern temperatures aren't an issue. As we already discussed, uh, beluga whales, you know, not only do they exist at this temperature, they've also been found upriver, um, specifically in the St. Lawrence River. So we're in that area. The one thing that I really just cannot get over with um, cetaceans is the neck. There is no neck on cetaceans. At the very least, cetaceans don't have like a you know a very visible neck in the same way. So the idea that a dolphin, a porpoise, or a whale would be mistaken for a long neck popping out of the water, it just I mean it just doesn't seem possible to me. So what do I believe? Well, I'm not going to say absolutely it doesn't exist because with the water being so unexplored, it feels like there's just so much we don't know. Um, I'm definitely excited to see where sonar evidence takes us in the future. I do think most of these sightings are not, they're just not real. Not because the New Yorkers were drunk all the time, like the Vermonters believed, but because of the pre-programming I mentioned in the beginning. I mean, they just all, the reports all sound too much like the Leviathan myth from the Bible to me. I also think that if you're going to steal someone else's livestock, a lake monster is a convenient excuse. Um... As always, thank you for taking this mental journey with me. Let me know what you think by tweeting at me at, at WhatSamHillPod. If you have a show idea, let me know. I love to explore new things. I will see y'all with a new episode next week. Until then, nullum magnum ingenium sine mixture dementia fuit.